If you find one aneurysm, you have a 50% chance of finding a second aneurysm. The test is kind of like interpreted as, well, it's more valuable or more meaningful, more legitimate. And in fact, in these cases, it's often very misleading. Great plaintiff's lawyers are not legal experts. They're performers. Hey, Rick Picotta, welcome. It's uh, the November issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. I've got a special group of people on the line uh, this month. We've never done this before. Uh, we've got Greg Henry. Uh, hey. You've heard him once or twice before. Yeah, okay. Greg's in Michigan. i got Greg Moore. Greg, uh, where are you uh, broadcasting from? I, I'm in Tacoma, Washington Tacoma, right now. Tacoma, Washington. And uh, we have Melanie Hennef, who is from Indianapolis. Yes. Okay. So these people are all here. We got four on the line, and we're going to do a something we've never done before, an all-pediatrics issue, which is kind of hard to do because pediatric cases are not all that common. But, we've, but before we get started, uh, I'd like to get a little bit of – Greg, you've been on before with us, but tell us what you're doing these days. Okay, I just uh, retired from a, a job at Madigan Army Medical Center. I, I retired from that position with the Army, and uh, now I'm going to kind of slow down a little bit. I've taken two part-time jobs. One will be at the residency at Maricopa in Phoenix, and then I'm also going to be working at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, part-time at that residency. And as we know from prior times, uh, Greg is an MDJD, and our newest guest is Melanie Hennef who is a uh, MD, almost JD, who is also a pediatric uh, ER uh, specialist. So she's a, a overachiever. So Melanie, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thank you. Um, I've been faculty at the Indiana University program in Indianapolis for over 20 years. Um, I overlapped with Greg Moore there for about 10 years. Um, boarded in PEDS, PEDS-EM, and uh, EM. Um, also, I'm in my last year of law school in a combined M JD and MHA program. So looking forward to winding down law school and finals pretty soon. Uh, I hear, are you in law re review? Did yes. I hear uh, that? Yes, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, What are you going to do with it, Melanie? How, do you, how are you going to combine these things? You've just beat oh, yourself but, for three years or four years I, <laughs> go back to school. What are you going to do? With she's that? coming right, after so you, Greg. She's coming yeah, after yeah. you. Yeah, I'm coming after you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm a full-time clinician, so I don't see winding down clinical practice for about 10 years, but I would like to do health law consulting and uh, maybe men mal defense. Very good. Well, listen. You'll run across uh, my name on a lot of uh, depositions that around the country. I think I've done about 2,000 cases now. And uh, so if you see my name pop up, you know where it's from. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. Monthly. Most of those cases were his. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> As he right. ran from hospital to hospital trying to hide from his uh, – problem with I, privileges. I did the best I could, Rick, and it's 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 all I can do. Now listen, before we get going on the peed stuff, as we always do every month, we like to keep you up to date 
on interesting, strange, unusual cases. I have two of them here. Number one, State Farm Fire and Casualty Insurance Company versus Ravenscroft. This is the Michigan Court of Appeals uh, published case, and the docket number is 345-377. Just came out September 2019. The insurer did not owe a duty to defendant uh, or indemnity as the insured is, is, uh, is not a part of the underlying death in this case. Now, let me just tell you, this is the strangest case I've ever heard of. Anytime you think that we've got a legal system, you can understand. A guy went nuts, stabbed his wife, and it was noted in the case, 24 times. Now, why 24 is more important than 23 or 22, I have no idea, but killed her. Now, the parents of his wife, who is now dead, sued the general homeowner's policy, saying that this guy, they deserve money for the death of their daughter because this guy should not have killed her. And uh, since it happened in the home, with the general policy, uh, they owe this, 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 these parents money. Have you ever heard of anything so strange? You two lawyers must have heard of something this weird <laughs> before. Well, the, at least the Michigan Court of Appeals says it deemed that uh, the wrongful death in this case was brought about uh, by the individual himself there was no way they could have known, and the, the court agreed that there was no uh, duty on the part of the insurance company to uncover this under the, uh, under the policy. The, Jeez, the Craig, policy. that sounds like a really surprising ruling. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I hope all of our fans out there realize how crazy and stupid the law can be that they even thought about that. I'm, I'm always interested how inventive lawyers are at come up, coming up with something which has nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. So the parents thought they were going to get big time money because their daughter was stabbed by her crazy son-in-law. Oh my God, that's nuts. Anyway, just showing you that uh, the legal system is still functioning with weird, unusual cases. Right? It's, it's functioning normally. It's, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> okay, listen. Now, which one of you going to start off with a case? I'll, I'll start off. Go, uh, so, so Greg Moore is going to give us our first PEDS case, and let's let's see what's going on here. Now, okay. I tell you, I should tell you, Greg, we did already cover the two. Uh, child abuse cases that were missed. One was forty-five million. Another was forty-eight million. Yep. In the past, uh, now obviously those are going to get appealed because nobody's worth forty-five million dollars in the United States of America. But um, those were uh, the biggest peds cases we've done. But but we've really not done very many in the way of clinical cases. So shoot. Okay. Yeah, I know uh, we talked earlier and uh, we, we won't be doing any abuse cases. I, I wanted to just do a quick 20-second scope of the problem. There was recently an article in 2018 in uh, 
pediatric emergency care on pediatric malpractice claims, and they looked at 728 claims over 15 years of insurance data. And just the generalizations is in PEDS cases, there's a payout in about 30% of cases. The average payout's about 320,000. Most common PEDS malpractice successful suits were appendicitis, cardiac or respiratory arrest, and uh, male genital problems. Cases involving fever and meningitis and fractures are actually decreasing uh, as compared to the, the old days when, uh, or 2005 when they last looked at it. Uh, I don't know if anyone has comments on that. I think I looked at that same study, Greg, and the thing that was striking to me is that that average payout for peds is uh, different than for adults. So you mentioned the 320,000. Adults, it's about 188,000. I think some of that comes into um, the thought that pediatric plaintiffs are more sympathetic. I think insurance companies are quicker to settle, less likely to put them in front of a jury. And then also long-term care issues, I think, come into play here. So by the, so, so by the it, way, uh, the uh, when you say that the uh, genital cases, I mean, are we talking about uh, torsion of the testis here? I mean, how many how many peds uh, genitalia cases can there be? How how much can you get wrong here other than a torsed testicle? No, that that's all. That's all what it is, and I, I think it's interesting what Melanie said about how the awards are are larger uh, than the adults, and and you know they're not just little adults in this case. In the in the courtroom, they're bigger adults uh, as far as money goes. Yeah, and by the way, if someone would like to give me three hundred eight thousand dollars for one of my testicles right now, I'll take it. They've just been getting me into my trouble my entire life, and uh, I don't need them anymore. So let's let's go. So and then so the first case is going to center around communication because uh, that's one way that peds is different than adults. And uh, my residency director he had a great saying. He said when you interact with a, a peds family that it's okay to politely ignore the grandmother, the father will usually know the name and sex of his child and always, always listen to the mother. So here's our first real case. This case is called uh, Castillo Montenarosa versus Rhode Island Hospital. And in this case, a one-week-old was taken to the ED by ambulance. Triage nurse took the history from the Spanish family via broken English and hand gestures. And at one point, the family said they had tapped on the chest but when asked if the child stopped breathing, replied, I don't know. No translator was obtained. A first-year peds resident saw the patient and did not feel a translator was needed. The infant was discharged and within hours had a respiratory arrest and died. And the cause of death was RSV and apnea. And it was very likely that when they tapped on the chest, it was because the kid had been apneic prior to coming to the ER. So there was actually no defense put up in this case, uh, and there was a result of a $400,000 payout. And the central thing here is, you know, communication is is really going to be key in pediatric cases. And uh, Medicare requires that uh, translators be made available through the language line, or people, are, most people are going to have Spanish translators, they do need to be qualified, quote-unquote qualified translators, although they don't have to be certified. But uh, I just reviewed another case where um, 
translation was core to the issue. Yeah. And but we all get lazy. I know I, it's like, oh, really? I got to mm-hmm. call the yes. number, bring, bring the thing, bring the phone over to the bed. I think I got it. It's good enough. I got it good enough. But uh, the, the key is, you know, I, I do tune in to the mother unless for some reason the father's the primary caretaker. I, I tune in to the mom. Melanie, any thoughts? Yeah, I usually recommend to my residents that they document that a translator was offered, but the family declined. If the family prefers to use their family member, I think that protects you. It, the, the key is that it was offered. And I think, too, the, the idea of putting the translator's name down uh, on the chart, because when the depositions are done, we'd like to know who, who that was and have them come in and how, how good was their English kind of thing. By the way, the, there's one thing that, that starts the ball rolling in this case, and they said the child was, what, one week old? Yes. Just stop. Before about six months of age, and I raised three kids, I've seen thousands of kids in my career, kids of that age are sort of like houseplants. I mean, they sort of sit there, you never get to talk to that kid he can't tell you how he's feeling and so one week olds are totally different even on an infectious disease basis a kid who's two months old is really difficult to kill you when you're going to see meningitis septicemia that sort of thing it's at that one week uh, level that's where the problems are three and four year old kids are never a problem they're running around stealing crap out of the drawers. They're just fine. It's these very tiny ones where I think the incidence of, of uh, suspicion has to be really high. Greg, do you think there's an issue here with having a first-year resident? Aren't residents doctors who are being learning to Three. be you know, graduates? A first-year resident on a one-week baby? What frame of reference does that resident have to assess whether this baby's got anything seriously wrong greg moore yeah or greg henry oh uh yeah i know that's just the nature of the beast in training though i mean it's all about supervision yes exactly hopefully hopefully somebody uh kind of went in and got the understanding and checked the exam but it seems like it might not have happened in this case All right. I have a couple of cases. The first one, I was involved as a defense expert uh, within the past year, and it was not a Greg Henry case, actually. And yes, (laughs) believe it or not, uh, Greg was not involved as an expert or as a defendant physician. This was a four-month-old who ended up being diagnosed with intussusception, and there were two ED visits that were an issue. The first one, there was one episode of vomiting. The child looked very well, was given a dose of an ondansetron ODT and sent home, did fine for 12 hours, came back, had vomited one more time. So the next doctor assessed the child, did the same thing, did not do any additional lab work, the documentation of vital signs looks good, got another dose of ondansetron, was told to follow up, and then 12 hours later came back clearly in distress and septic. This was actually settled a week before trial for a million dollars. 
And the issues here were, what about on Dancitron in a four-month-old? I think historically we were told, oh, don't give young children antiemetics that mask something. But I really felt like, you know, a dose or two of a Dancitron is not that big a deal. I talked to most of my colleagues who would agree. I think there's some question whether on a bounce back of a four-week-old, maybe you have to look a little closer. I you know, might have done lab work or x-rays, but again, the vitals were fine. The presentation was really not different. Um, the other issue they brought up, which drove me crazy, is the nurse's note had the pain scale showing that the baby must have been in pain, and why didn't the doctor recognize that? And, and I find those smiley face things absurd, especially for a four-month-old. So how could that be a factor? Um, more issues were that this particular hospital didn't really have a capacity to do pediatric ultrasound or air enemas for intussusception, so the decision would have required transfer. Um, so, you know, again, this was <clears throat> going to trial, and then I think at the last minute, there were factors considered by the insurance company. Well, sympathetic plaintiff, you know, form with the <clears throat> baby dies of sepsis after complications, and they just decided to settle. And that may be the best decision, uh, depending on that venue where you are. Uh, Venue A and venue B can be totally different. We have counties in Michigan where you take that any day. We have other places. You'd never go to trial on that kind of case. Let me just say this. Four-month-old who's in there with abdominal pain, and now they come back. The key here is they returned. What they did was they gave you the opportunity to redo the case. I'd be very interested in reading. Uh, was this a resident case, by the way, or was this an attending? No, these were case? both attendings, both physicians. Because I want to see the records and what they said and what they did. Because now when they come back in, people get into this habit of saying, oh, they're, they're probably all right. They were just here the other day. Mother's just concerned. You know what, that that better be an all-star record when they come back the second time that you've done all the things that are necessary. And it's kind of a poor excuse to say, well, we don't have ultrasound, we don't have this or that. Uh, transfer them to a place that does, if you're uncertain, because uh, these are these are never good cases in front of a jury, because nobody expects a parent to know about intussusception. Most of the jury doesn't know about it. With, with older kids, with 12-year-olds, everybody knows about appendicitis. And now we're just going to treat it with antibiotics anyway. Uh, and, and very few people are going to get surgery for their appendicitis. But intussusception is an, is an unusual case. Most of the jury won't know about it, and they think you're supposed to go look it up. I, I, by the way, I know the question line I would use with those doctors. How many cases of intussusception have you diagnosed in your career? Uh, so when you're unsure, what do you do? Uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting case, and I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of us could have early missed a, uh, an intussusception. Melanie, was the uh, doctor who treated this person a, a board-certified emergency physician? 
Yeah so, yeah, so actually the first doctor who saw the baby after one episode of vomiting was IM certified. <coughs> and the second doctor who saw the baby as a bounce back and just kind of repeated the same exam in history was EM board certified. And then when the baby came back in distress, it was the original internist who saw the baby and, and transferred. Because I was going to wonder about uh, whether the ER physician had uh, capabilities to do their own ultrasound because uh, I know nothing. I know nothing, but I have seen pictures of intussusception, and it's a really very, very, very characteristic ultrasound. Uh, and the, but you'll never make that diagnosis if you don't think of it. And this is again is an uncommon diagnosis. I also have to believe that you know these cases are typically associated with abdominal pain, and um, it was probably you know, a little bit more than just a, an episode or two of vomiting because uh, they, and they have sometimes this characteristic abdominal pain where they have bicycling and they turn red and it's obviously they're in some distress and then they go into this period of like calmness, almost trance-like kind of behavior, which is, which is kind of, I don't know if it's pathognomonic, it probably isn't, but it it's des described a lot in the books about, intermittent pain associated with these uh, uh, interceptions and a vertically oriented right-sided uh, 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 mass because it's usually where the small bowel invaginates into the large bowel. Well, as Greg Henry commented, uh, this baby was in the age where they're typically plant life. So, you know, assessing pain in a four-month-old is really difficult. There was nothing in the parent's history or the documentation that expressed pain other than the smiley faces on the nurse's triage note. And the plaintiff attorney uh, basically pressed me on the pain issue, said, well, doctor, don't you know that 20% of intussusception cases don't have pain. But then when that didn't work, he said, well, don't you know this baby had pain because the nurse documented a sad face? By the way, the uh, when, when we get into pain scales in kids, I think these, these smiley face things with children that age are just a waste of time. I, I've never seen that uh, make any of those decisions. But I will say this. Let me take you back being an old doc like Rick in 1968, seeing x-rays for my first time in med school, we had a plain film of the abdomen of a child within a susception. We didn't have any of these other tests at that point in time. And you know what? It was positive. Was a plain film of the abdomen done on this child? No. Yeah. And... and I, 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 would, I, would, I was about to say, and I would chime in... Uh, you know, we're concerned about radiation in kids and CAT scans and so forth. And every kid that comes in vomiting, I don't get a plain film. No. But if they, if they come in a couple times, uh, I like to just show that there's a normal gas pattern in that abdomen. There's nothing where it's all collected on one side. Uh, there's no air fluid levels. So I will often, in the young ones, you know, when they're this age, two months, where you, they can have all that kind of GI volvulus and so forth, I will often shoot a plain film on a recurrent visit. There's not that much radiation. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Uh, the, the amount of radiation they use today is one-tenth what they used 25 years ago. They've all gone down in the amount of radiation. And number two, uh, the total effect on that child 
is certainly less from any radiation than would be having it in a susception. I, I mean, at some point in time, you've got to weigh these things back and forth. And uh, at least the parents should have some idea that you're looking for a problem and what's going to happen. Um, I know that nobody wants to hear that stuff anymore because every resident is now trained completely in the use of ultrasound. But, but for us old guys, uh, a plain film is not totally without use anymore. I agree. I think especially on the second visit, you might want to consider doing a little bit more. But according to the documentation, the presentations were nearly identical other than that it was a return visit. You wonder uh, what prompted the nurse to put down a face suggesting the child was in pain. Maybe in her professional judgment, uh, she thought the child looked like it was in pain, was acting in distress. And um, the case I just recently reviewed, it was all about what the nurses said about uh, somebody's pain. And uh, so I, I, I don't know that I would discount what the nurse said uh, because it's, it looks like the, the plaintiff attorney went back and you know used that as an element in this case. So I guess the idea is really look at the nurse's notes, why they say it, hope that your notes, hope that your assessment and the nurse's assessment are in sync. All right, the next case I have is um, a standard of care case. It's Bullock v. Amini from Missouri. And this was a 12-year-old who lacerated his leg on a stick. The wound was explored, cleaned, and sutured. He came back a couple days later with cellulitis. The sutures were taken out. The wound was cleaned again, and he got one dose of IV antibiotics and was discharged on oral antibiotics. The very next day, he comes back and now has necrotizing fasciitis, mm. gets multiple surgeries, debridement. So the plaintiff alleged you should have done an ultrasound. Here we have ultrasound coming up again as an issue. Should have ultrasounded him looking for a foreign body. Um, or you should have admitted them. The defense was, we met the standard of care. This was a laceration with a stick. The wood that was eventually taken from the wound was actually found pretty distal to the wound. So the jury returned a verdict for the defense. And I think as far as standard of care, you can only do what you can do. And someone typically getting a a superficial laceration on a piece of wood um, uncommonly has foreign body. But I think if you have any question, an Uh ultrasound would be helpful. Um, Certainly don't expect most of these cases to come back with neck fash. Um, But we have had a similar case where someone came back with uh, wood from a stick in their wound and ended up with a pretty severe cellulitis. Go ahead. Well, there's no question that on the first visit, you you and I all make decisions. How well can we see the wound? Are we looking down at it? Can we clean that wound? All these sorts of things. The key here is the second visit. It's not getting better. So now we've got to think about foreign body. And now that we do have, you know, it's a different world. We do have an ultrasound. We can ultrasound that limb looking for a foreign body. And believe me, if, if you'd called in the general surgeon to look at that limb, he would have ultrasounded the limb. Uh, I'm not so sure of that. I think that I, I fully agree <laughs> that if I can see what I perceive to be the full extent of the wound, uh, I'm, I'm kind of done. And uh, so I, I first, guess in this case... First visit, Rick. I guess first the, visit. 
I yeah, guess the standard of care, I think, was uh, met, but I think it was a qualitative <laughs> issue. I mean, how well did you look at the, uh, were, uh, were you able to uh, see the full extent of the wound? You think you did? Obviously, you didn't. I would be curious as to how big a piece of wood they ultimately found, because there's always going to be a little something in there kind of thing. I think I try to protect myself from these issues by telling the parents, if it's something like wood, I really can't be 100% sure there's mm -hmm. not something still in there. And I think you can only do what you can do. But if you give them the idea that that's a possibility, I don't want to cut this wound open bigger and start digging around for something that I can't see on a plane film or even an ultrasound. So I, I think just setting that expectation that, but unfortunately, this was a very severe, un <laughs> uh, unexpected infection, but at least there was a defense verdict in this case. Well, uh, I'll just answer Rick's question. The wood, when it was found, was one centimeter by two centimeters, the piece. Yeah. Yes, but when they show that picture to the jury, it, it, looks, <laughs> it, well, right. it, it, it looks like Gigantic. A, a, a model of Noah's Ark. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually... Two centimeters is that's not that's a sizable piece of wood. I mean, it's not like we're talking about right. a little splinter here for crying out loud. Right. It's not yeah. a two by four, but it, yeah. I can, but, so but standard and, of care standard of care is going to be most states. Everyone has their own rule, but in general, it's what a reasonable person would do in the same situation. So first first visit uh, has a has a cut uh, irrigated sewed up. Is that reasonable? Seems pretty reasonable. Second visit, now it's infected. Take the stitches out, irrigate it, give them some antibiotics, send them out on antibiotics, see how it goes. Is that reasonable? I mean, you could have done more, but it's not unreasonable. I think that's how we manage this. And and uh, the courts do. There's some famous cases that say a doctor doesn't guarantee a good outcome. He only must provide reasonable care. And the court has defined reasonable care as um, just – minimally minimal care minimally adequate care it doesn't even have to be average or above average and if you think about it if you guaranteed your care was average or above then 50 percent of all medicine would be malpractice so 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 the court will define it as minimally competent care and reasonable by a reasonable person in the same situation right. so anyway yeah i would agree really that that the standard sounded like it was fo followed here I mean, they still miss it, but but the the process that they describe it seems like you know nobody's going to argue with that. But and then also though, one of the more common law pra uh, malpractice suits in pediatrics will be your lacerations and wound care. So it does highlight that bad things can happen, and keep your guard up. Yeah. Ready for another case? Yes, this absolutely. This is uh, a bunch of unknowns, anonymous versus anonymous in Maryland. A 14-year-old had sudden, severe right lower quadrant pain at 8.30 in the morning with nausea and vomiting. Uh, the abdomen was examined, and a CT scan was ordered to rule out appendicitis. White count of 12,000. UA showed 10 to 12 white cells. The CT was suggestive of appendicitis, so a surgeon was called. And the surgeon came down and evaluated the patient and said, hey, you know, his testicle swollen. He mentioned this to the ED physician, and the ED physician uh, did his first genital exam. There's, of course, a teaching point we hear over and over. When a child has abdominal pain, look at the genitals. 
And an ultrasound was done and revealed decreased flow to both testes and right epididymal enlargement. There was pain on the right side. So the ED physician then discharged the patient on antibiotics with a diagnosis of epididymitis. Two days later, they came back with worse symptoms. An ultrasound showed a clear uh, right testicular torsion, and the testicle was necrotic and removed. And so then there was a lawsuit for failure to do an adequate exam and failure to make the diagnosis. And um, the defense was, well, you know, the, the ultrasound was not asymmetrical, really, as far as flow. Uh, how do you think this comes out? They pay. Yeah. This Everybody is a verdict, pays. Verdict for 809000 That's a lot of money uh, for a, a, a testicle. Uh, I'm going to ask you two experts, why... What are the damages in uh, these cases? Uh, uh, when it, what what what's the harm here? He's got another testicle. They make babies just fine. Thank you very much. You know, right? Well, I think they bring up some of the emotional issues for a child. Like, hey, they're going to have to go to gym class, and they only well, they have well, well, the well, stress we, of we could potentially put a, you know, not being able to have children. Wait a second, I want to ask a yeah. question here. Was I an unusual teenager? How many times in gym class did you check to see whether the guy <laughs> next to you had one ball or two? Yes. I think the, that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, and they ate that can stick they, in the Teflon ball, yeah. uh, a, a prosthes, prosthetic, if you want. But I think that a lot of that's a bunch of, a bunch of crap. Now, I understand why people are unhappy about this not being taken care of but rick's point is is well taken harm done what is the actual harm in this child uh you could set up a fund so that at age 15 he didn't have normal sperm count uh, you could pay him then uh, think about that for a minute because if what we're upset about is lack of reproductive capability I don't think that's right. Well, yeah. you know, I, agree. I agree. We see plaintiff experts and attorneys be very successful in these cases. And, you know, it's unclear why one testicle is worth so much when Greg Henry was willing to sell his for, what, 300000 308. Right? I, yeah. I'd close that deal tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but, Greg Moore, do you have comments? Oh, yeah, I have several uh, comments. One is uh, this was a large verdict. And and when I, I, I recently wrote a review on malpractice testicular torsion, and the average is right around 300000 about what Greg's is worth. That's, a, that's about what the average testicular payout is. This case illustrates, you know, you think, oh, my God, we got ultrasounds, but it's still one of the more common awards in pediatric medicine. Why? Why? And the reasons why is we saw in this case, the first is, you don't examine the testis. The surgeon had to tell the ER doc, hey, you know, his testis is swollen. And uh, so you don't do the exam and you send them home and then they have it. The second is you get the ultrasound and you rely on it. Mm. Uh, you know, they, this was symmetrical pretty much, except for the epididymis. And you rely on that and say, well, I've done the ultrasound. My job's over. And a lot of these cases come back as torsion. Number one, uh, mainly because the radiologist misreads the ultrasound. 
And then the radiologist ends up paying out about one third of the payout. And the ED doc still pays out two thirds. And the logic is you were there. This was clinically obvious. Why would you let a wrong test or a misread test prevent you from doing what you were very suspicious of anyway? Greg, you make the point that uh, even in the history, you said sudden onset of severe, that's not appendicitis. And uh, this is a good opportunity to basically say, you you just have to, with that kind of history, you just got to take off the clothes and look, uh, look appropriately. And there's all of these cases where the people get misled by the ultrasound. It's not a really great test unless it's really pretty convincing. I mean, you, where you would see basically a shutdown on one side and a nice bright red testicle on the other side. Fine, that, okay, that's a, that's a clear positive. But there's all of these gray zone cases, which, you know, the best way there is to make a small hole in the, in the scrotum and take a look kind of thing. Right, right. Have a low, have a low threshold when it. Cl- I just, the generalism is don't let one test sway you from something that you're pretty convinced is there. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Uh, pursue it, like you say, Rick. Well, it's one of those things where we we give more value and more weight to a test than we do to our clinical judgment because the test is kind of like interpreted as well. It's more valuable and more meaningful, more legitimate. And in fact, in these cases, it's often uh, very misleading. Yeah, actually, the general surgeon is the hero here because he's not going to he didn't operate on the appendix because the thing was suggestive. He said, this is the testicle. You ought to do something about that. Now, I don't know what it is like where you are, but here a general surgeon would pretty much uh, suggest you call in urology to take a look at that. General surgeons don't do uh, testicular torsions anymore. Maybe they did one in their training someplace, but really the general surgeon here was on the right track. Yeah. Ready for the next one? Yeah. Yep. uh, It's another bunch of unknowns. It's anonymous versus anonymous. This case is upsetting, but there's some legal points to make. Uh, It's a five-year-old without a spleen, comes in with a fever, and gets looked at and discharged as a viral syndrome, Uh, a splenic kid with a fever, viral syndrome, goes home. How do you think he does? Pneumococcal septicemia and dies. Okay. Here's the curveball. He goes home and he does fine. (coughs) Three years later, he presents with overwhelming sepsis and dies. And there is a lawsuit against the ED physician from three years prior when he did fine, saying if you would have given him pneumovax on that visit, I wouldn't have died three years later. Hmm. How do you think that comes out? There was a verdict for $1.2 million. Artful, oh, my God. It's called artful lawyering. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, and this, this really upsets you, and you say, are you kidding me? Uh, but Melanie and I know that uh, <laughs> it makes complete legal sense. So, unfortunately, from a medical standpoint, it's really disturbing, especially when you talk about typical statute of limitations issues, which we hope to cover a little bit later. Um, 
there usually there's a two-year statute in some states that's longer for pediatric patients. But the thing about this is where was his pediatrician? I mean, the reason that this was put on the emergency position, I suspect, is there wasn't adequate follow-up in between. And from a legal standpoint, there's an emphasis on foreseeability. So from a legal argument sense, you could say, well, of course it was foreseeable that this child got an illness and became septic because he had no spleen and he wasn't protected by vaccines. So Greg and I, because this is what nerds do, we've talked about some cases that are legal and unrelated to medicine, but the concepts get applied um, in a courtroom for a malpractice case, like a, a car accident leads to a series of events and injuries. And the law will look at, well, wasn't it foreseeable that when you left your stalled car in the middle of a four-lane highway and tried to flag down help, you were going to cause other accidents? And so I think that was the legal argument that won here, but it, it's still very uh, frightening and disturbing to me. Well, and what about, so, so, what about the surgeon who took this uh, spleen out? I mean, do they not have some kind of obligation to... Uh, um, recommend uh, that the person be gotten a, a, the pneumovax. This you, you're bringing up so many so many uh, interesting points. So one is a concept. Well, first of all, just realize in the ER it's tag you're it, and yes. you you start a story, and that doctor started the story. And until the story's over, he's still a part of the story. So that you need to ensure follow-up so someone else is uh, tag your it. And the legal words that uh, are used are but for, foreseeable. But for you not giving that pneumovax, this kid would have been alive. And you're still on the hook because you didn't tag anyone else. So then if they don't follow up, or the surgeon said, hey, you should be getting this every year, then you use a concept of contributory negligence where you say, hey, patient, it's your own darn fault. You didn't follow up like you were supposed to. You didn't get the immunizations, vaccinations that the surgeon recommended. Then you can throw it back at them as they're negligent. But other words, uh, realize when you start the story, the story doesn't end until you've tagged someone else. Yeah, I agree with the tagging. Another legal term they would use is intervening cause. So if after the ED doc saw him, somebody else saw him for a fever and didn't address the vaccine issue, that might have been an intervening cause that would then be responsible, not the ED doc. So I think that that's um, helpful to consider. Or better, keep everybody in the case so the doctors can all hold hands in the in the box uh, every doctor who saw the kid for an infectious process could be considered part of that chain of events. You had the opportunity to prevent this from going on. I, we don't know why he had his spleen removed. Was that traumatic? I mean, I don't know why that happened, but you would think at that time, uh, the medical people who were involved, and I'm sure there was a pediatrician, this child went into the hospital and had a spleen removed. There was a pediatrician involved as well who should have had some sit down and discussion with the parents about, about the rest of this kid's life and severe infections. Uh, you could really bring a lot of people into this case. Uh, and then, of course, no, no plaintiff cares. 
just bring everybody in, let them fight with each other, and then divide up the uh, the cost of the case. It seems I do, to be. What I they do, do. Want to say that uh, when I went to law school twenty years ago, uh, the term was "tag your it." Yeah. Uh, now Melanie, she's a modern lawyer, and it's intervening cause. There you right. go. <laughs> it sounds more elegant. Greg, let's yeah, use the yeah. let's use the proper terminology. Yeah. Get, get with the times, you know. Yeah, a, a five dollar term, right? Exactly. <laughs> yep, Melanie. Right. Yeah, you ready for another one? Sure. Okay, so this one is Muse versus Hamad. It's an Alabama case of a fifteen-year-old girl. She came into an ED with severe headache and vomiting. She was discharged with Phenergan and uh, Tordal. She was told to follow up the next day, but instead she um, did come back to the ED, got more Phenergan. Here we go, a bounce back issue so you know where this is headed. Um, her mother called their primary doctor the next day and said she's still not better. So uh, incredibly, uh, ibuprofen was phoned in for her. So she then ended up in the ED again got morphine and was discharged, diagnosed with a migraine and dehydration, came back two days later. And initially, the physician that saw her, even though this is now, I think, her fourth visit, he recommended against getting a CT scan, but he listened to the mother who insisted on it. And she ended up having a subarachnoid hemorrhage, ended up in surgery and has uh, persistent left-sided motor deficits and also memory deficits. So the plaintiff alleged that the doctors failed to timely order the tests that would have made the diagnosis. Defense was, no, we met the standard of care. Her presentation was more typical with the viral illness or a migraine. And who do you think won on this one? Mm. Tough, tough case. Um, I uh, maybe maybe the original doctor would not be found guilty at this point in time because there was an intervening examination and they had another chance at making the diagnosis. Well, well I'll take the other point of view and let's say uh, <coughs> if you have three visits uh, and then you, on the fourth visit you make the diagnosis, uh, you're, you're entitled to be pissed off. Because there was a delay, uh, there was an opportunity cost here that uh, occurred, um, and somebody kind of uh, dropped the ball. And you know, I think it's, I think it's really always very dangerous to be the first one to make the diagnosis of migraine. Right, right. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, fortunately, this was actually a defense verdict. So everyone on the defense side won. Artful and, lawyering. Yeah, artful yes. lawyering again, and. This makes an important point about um, the concern for limiting CT scans in younger <laughs> patients. It, it's such a dilemma. I mean, we want to, um, you know, choose wisely and be careful about scans, and yet we see frightening cases like this. And so I think it's you know, discussing risks and benefits with the parents, important, and with the child. And then uh, Greg Moore, who was one of my uh, faculty members back when I was a, a junior resident, used to say that a good CT scan is worth four or five neurologists. Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other, the other point here is, uh, you know, again, listen to the mother. You know, I, I mean, if it's a multiple visits and somebody's demanding a test, if there's a reason <laughs> that, that – 
it seems any way reasonable, I I do it. Now, if they come in and say my toe still hurts and I want an MRI, that's one thing. But you know, headache four times. If the mom says I want. I want a CT scan. I, I, I go ahead and do that. Can you imagine how it looks to the jury? Like even the mother knows the test that's supposed to be done here. And uh, you, you doctors right. can't figure this out. Right. Let right. me ask a question. In this case, the diagnosis was they had a subarachnoid hemorrhage secondary to what? An aneurysm? Yes. 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 And so it was operated upon. Understand that you do not 100% of the time know where the bleeding site is. It's not always treatable. There's another aspect to any of these cases, and that is, would our intervention have actually changed the outcome? And we don't know that 100% of the time. By the way, if they'd seen her the very first time she was in, and they, they did an angiogram, found an aneurysm, and went in, there's no guarantee she would not have some deficits today. It depends on what that aneurysm fed. So, I, I, I mean, don't, don't buy into the argument immediately that if only I'd done this, they'd be winning the gold medal at the next Olympics. Because sometimes that's not correct. I mean, I, I understand why we want to compensate for certain harms, but that doesn't mean you could stop those things from going on to an unfortunate conclusion. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because uh, this because this was delayed all of this time. You know, was it really an extensive hemorrhage? Was it was it uh, was the outcome likely to be uh, able to have been attenuated in some way? And I think that. Um, I, you know, it's kind of like well, maybe the plaint the uh, the lawyers uh, were successful in defending the doctors, but the outcome really was very discouraging. I would be uh, I would be pissed if it was a family member of mine. Yeah, it's very sad. But like, uh, I agree with you completely, Greg. Uh, you know, even the surgery itself that 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 has problems a lot of times. Yes. Yeah, a little memory loss, you know, and a little weakness. It's like, well, that's the price you paid to get your life-threatening aneurysm taken care of. Uh, right. You know, that comes into play as well. Yeah, you, you can't believe how, un, how uncomfortable families are uh, because if you find one aneurysm, uh, you have a 50% chance of finding a second aneurysm. Which one do you operate on? Do you do both of them? And God help you when one of those operations doesn't go well. This is not a 15-minute, uh, yeah, this is routine, Mom. This is like taking out the appendix. It's not. But I, I, I also agree with Rick a lot. I mean, I try to step back and, you know, I know Melanie and I know that these are very interesting legal cases in law school. Oh, this is interesting. That's interesting. But then you ought to remember that, you know, this is somebody's sweet 15-year-old girl who next year is going to go to the prom, and I brought mm -hmm. her in for help, mm -hmm. and I brought her in again for help, and I brought her in again for help. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. You know, I, I, I'm i like with you, Rick. You know, it just it kind of ain't right. Even if you won, you won the legal battle, you know? Right. It's kind of sad. 
All right, I have one more um, of a very young infant, again, that will highlight what we've been talking about. And this is from the great state of Michigan, uh, Pace V. Hawley. Seven-week-old boy gets brought to the ED with nasal congestion, vomiting, and diarrhea. The ED physician documented no signs of dehydration, diagnosed a viral upper respiratory infection, and the baby went home and reportedly seemed okay for a couple days, but then was found unresponsive by his parents. They called 911, and the resuscitation was not successful. There was an autopsy done that didn't show a definite diagnosis, but did note marked dehydration. So the plaintiff alleged you didn't diagnose dehydration, you should have done more testing, you should have been more aggressive about treating a seven-week-old. And the defense was, well, he was not dehydrated when I saw him, I documented this, he had urine output, he had tears, uh, he advised the mother to increase fluids. And he said, well, this baby probably became dehydrated days after discharge. So in this case, it went to trial, and there was a jury verdict for $930,000. Pretty frightening, and I feel like there had to be more going on in this case than what we saw. You know, something happened in those intervening three or four days, uh, because clearly when the baby presented, they were not dehydrated. They were doing well. It was well documented. So it's sort of surprising, the verdict, but on the other hand, here we go, sympathetic plaintiff, delicate newborn baby. Uh, Maybe you could be more aggressive about working them up. So, you know, I I really feel like this was a tough case and would make more sense to me if there was a bounce back or the the baby came back soon and was not aggressively treated. But here is fine one day and then three or four days later dies and has severe dehydration. You know, something else was going on. My tip tip to all docs is a kid this age in the department, feed them, give them, give them fluid, uh, you know, by mouth, show that this child is going to be okay to go home. If they'd done that, say not only, you know, we did this, we gave them the popsicle, we gave them the this, the gave them the that, uh, that's a very tenuous diagnosis on the part of pathology. Dehydration, yeah. they, that's what they died of dehydration, that's actually an odd reason to die uh, in, in this kind of situation. I agree with you totally. Uh, uh, you know, writing on that chart, the child, I mean, that's pretty much all they can do at seven. They, they, they eat and they poop and they sleep. And if, if you kind of get on the chart, hey, they ate fine, you know, uh, I don't know that to me, that's 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 a good thing to put on the chart. One of the mitigating factors in this case is the mom uh, had cerebral palsy and the mom had scoliosis and she was told you will never ever be able to have a child. And this was a miracle baby that now was gone and dead. And, you know, likely she's never going to get a second chance. So you bring that into the court as well. And a generalism that I see in cases like this uh, and adults across all spectrums is when you don't order any tests, you better have a good history and a good physical and a good chart uh, because lawyers will come in and say, look, the doctor didn't even get a single test because he didn't really care. He didn't care enough to order a test. So uh, I, I I tell the residents, hey, it's okay if you don't get anything, 
but you better make up for it with interaction with the family, a good history, a great physical on the chart. Melanie, yeah, was, there, I, was there any fever in this child? No. Yeah. By the way, this case is the ideal case for the great artful lawyer to give the tear-jerking closing to the jury. I mean, great plaintiff's lawyers are not legal experts. None of them are. They're performers. They're actors. Uh, and and this is a tear-jerking closing argument with the uh, uh, mother with scoliosis, the miracle child, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is the this is the kind of case that uh, TV wants on their drama, because uh, you know on TV trials are not near as boring as they are in person. Why? Because they only show usually the closing arguments and the best two minutes of it. That's what that's what this case would be good for. Absolutely. Again and again, we see these sympathetic plaintiffs and artful plaintiff attorneys who can convince the jury of this. And I think that's why insurance companies are so quick to settle in pediatric cases or settle for higher amounts rather than risk a jury decision like this. You know, you have to be pretty ballsy uh, not to have a really close follow-up on a kid who's seven weeks old, no matter what the heck they're coming into. And and if you're going to discharge them and you're not going to do any test and you're going to create a chart, the go-home chart, that basically says cries with tears and all of these other kinds of things that that still doesn't absolve you from these are seven week old kids. They're in the larval stage for crying out loud. They, (laughs) they, they need to be seen the next day because one of my concerns to tell you the truth is, and I just read a paper and it's brand new where they looked at residents, uh, uh, they're charting, to see what review of systems they actually did compared to what they charted and what physical exams they did and what they charted. And they grossly over uh, charted their physical exam. They, um, and they were being observed, even by faculty was observing them. And the residents were told that this is a, a, a time and motion study kind of thing, when in fact the reality of the, of the, of the study was we're watching what you do and what you document. And there was substantial over-documentation of the physical and substantial over-documentation of the, of the review of systems. And I'm really afraid of smart doctors creating the go-home chart when it's really not a go-home case. You know, well, it, they painted Rick, all this picture of a perfectly well child, which in fact, it just came out, this mer- macro got blurted out, which in fact really wasn't absolutely. the case. Yeah. Uh, how many times have you seen pupils equal round reactive to light and accommodation? Uh, most of them don't even know what accommodation is. I'll stand some of them up and say, I'll let you start at either the Edinger Westfall or the pretectal nucleus, and you draw out accommodation for me. I uh, actually taught an attorney about that for her to ask a doctor who was talking about accommodation. You can't believe how fast that doctor fell apart on their neuroanatomy knowledge. Yeah, uh, yeah and- I mean, I can't tell you how many EMS charts I've seen where they bring a kid in who's two months old, three months old, and says alert and oriented, <laughs> alert and oriented. <laughs> it's like, okay, exactly. they told you your name. Yeah, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. Got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I got why? another. I got another. Oh, go ahead. Nope. I got another case. Uh, this one has two visits, so it kind of has. You have to listen a little. But uh, if I asked you to guess what what areas we were going to talk about, you might not have guessed this one. And I'm seeing it a lot more oftenly uh, presented in successful litigation uh, in an age group that surprises you. So here's an eight-year-old girl who was sent by her pediatrician for concerns of right lower quadrant pain, uh, either appendicitis or renal colic. Uh, patient examined by a resident it said, yep, there's right lower quadrant tenderness, but she can jump up and down. Uh, they got a KUB and a UA. They were normal. CBC showed a leukocytosis. They talked to a pediatric surgeon. Uh, and They kind of decided to let her go home with observation as abdominal pain. On visit number two, she comes to the ED. Uh, it was really only an hour later, and, and she felt suddenly worse. And the same provider saw her and said, hey, there's no fever. There's no guarding. Uh, again, was given a diagnosis because of anchor biasing, I guess, uh, that this is a non-surgical abdomen, and we're going to give you some fluids. And then the nurse called the physician and said, hey, she's screaming in pain. And then, so the physician went into the room and she was in pain for the nurse, but she wasn't for the physician. And the mother said, do you think maybe we should do an ultrasound? And the attending said, no, there's no reason to get an ultrasound. And of course, what did she have? Ovarian torsion. An ovarian torsion. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of interesting because we say the clock is running whenever there's a testicular torsion. But we, but we never seem to have the kind of the equivalent urgency when we, when one of the diagnostic options is a to- ovarian torsion. It's kind of the same thing. This is ischemic pain. It's kind of dull, hard to localize kind of thing. It's it's not, and it's the same as testicular torsion. And it's really kind of like that's why it's kind of up in the belly from embryologic reasons. But it's kind of like it's a heart attack of the of the ovary, the heart attack of the testes. And yeah, it, it waxes just... and wanes. It waxes and wanes. That's what this guy got trapped in. So uh, uh, I'd say beware of this. I've seen at least two cases recently. They're both right in the 8 to 10-year-old age range. Just don't don't forget about it. That's all I would say. This was a settlement for $500,000 on this one. Again, the just... same thing. She got another one. That's fine. She can have all the babies she wants kind of thing. I'll, yeah, give, I'll give her the money when she can't have a baby. I, I, I think this is a tricky diagnosis. I'm going to be very honest, <laughs> very honest. But uh, more than once, I have diagnosed an ovarian torsion because I got a CT for appendicitis. So it, it, it is. you might not think of it. It can be tricky. But this case would tell you, even in these young kids, don't forget about it. Well, yeah, you're not going to make the diagnosis if you don't put it into your deferential and think of it. You're not going to make the diagnosis of intussusception either, unless you consider it as part of the differential of a kid's belly, you know, in terms of the causes of a surgical abdomen in kids, you know, or, or acute abdominal pain, that's, you know, it's probably in the top 10. Yeah. 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 Right. There is a reason we went to medical school uh, and that is you needed to be exposed to a certain number of diseases to keep them, let you know that they are part of the differential. And we shouldn't forget that. Yes. Next case is Greg versus Kuhn in Maryland. <laughs> uh, brings up some good points. Uh, 
This is a two-week-old, so again, we're in our very young. Uh, and this girl was brought into the emergency department for poor feeding and shortness of breath, so she would have failed Greg Henry's test of not eating well. Blood cultures were done, and PEDS was consulted. The child was discharged to follow up with their pediatrician. Uh, the blood culture grew out group B streptococcus, grew out group B streptococcus, and the child developed meningitis and kind of had a permanent brain uh, problem. And so then the plaintiff sued and said, hey, the blood culture was positive the next day, but you didn't call us for six hours. And that six-hour delay, uh, we could have had them in here getting antibiotics. Uh, the defense was, you know, we did minimally competent care. Uh, it's reasonable to wait and see what the <laughs> organism is before we pick an antibiotic. Um, so this, I mean, th what this illustrates kind of one thing is, uh, you know, two week old, they haven't had their immunizations. I know, I know Greg and Rick, we worked in the back in the days when there wasn't immunizations for a lot of these bad things. And, right. and, and you had to be careful with blood cultures and so forth. But it, it illustrates that. Remember kids that haven't been immunized. And other thing is, and this is a hundred percent loser in court. I've never seen a defense win is if you don't follow up on a test, if you don't follow up on a test you've ordered and bad things happen, you will never get out of that case. You always will lose. This one was a jury verdict for $9.5 million. Yeah, and, and the truth is, if somebody said, Greg, here's your two-week-old two or three-week-old, and here's $9.2 million to take care of them for the rest of your life, that's not enough money. I mean, this really is a, a no-win situation, uh, and and there's nothing you're going to do to defend that. If you've sent over a culture and they're not reading those things, and almost all labs have a, you know, every three hours or four hours, what it is, the cultures are checked. If that isn't happening, um, why did you send the, the culture why is the lab in business? What are they doing? Uh, the problem is so many people send so much stuff and so little of it is positive that we start to think that nothing is positive or important. Although uh, uh, we minimize it. A two-week-old is, is not the same as a two-month-old. Uh, right. the, in, the incidence of meningitis is in the first month of life is much higher than the second, and particularly the second two weeks is higher than the third, third and fourth two weeks. This kid basically is; these kids are easy. These kids, they get a lumbar puncture, they get a, a urine, a urine culture, and they get blood cultures, and they're given antibiotics depending on the results of their culture. I mean, it's like there's not. You should not not do a lumbar puncture in a kid that's two weeks old who's coming in with any kind of. Did now I did I misspeak? Did this kid not have a fever? That did not have a fever, but was kind of lethargic. And well, you know, I, okay, that's fine because uh, if they look sick, then they have to get the septic workup. You know, they're lethargic; well, they're not acting right. I was, I yes, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. whether they have a fever or not. And I it, think it, a big. Go ahead. I just think, I think it's the, automatic. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big issue here is the organism. 
So group B strep is something that can have a delayed presentation. So moms, group B strep positive, that's something that can still come <laughs> into play with delayed meningitis or sepsis, even up to 10 or 12 weeks of age. So when I have a neonate, I always ask the mom, do you remember if you were group B strep positive? Did they have to give you antibiotics uh, during delivery? And often they'll remember either way. Um, the other issue is the six hour delay. And I don't know how you guys handle blood culture callbacks, but whenever they get back, we'll get handed a slip from the secretary in a logbook. And sometimes we get that handed to us in the middle of a busy night shift. It's 2 a.m. Uh, you know, this case would illustrate that that's the kind of result that you probably do have to wake somebody up at 2 a.m. and tell them that baby needs to come back. But I bet that doesn't happen in a lot of EDs, depending on who's handling that callback and paperwork. I would be very surprised if this was... I hate to say it, that this was, uh, if this was a board-certified emergency physician, I would be very concerned about this doctor because I think this, is, this was not the standard of care, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yeah, yeah I'd I agree, well, Rick. Uh, this was a jury verdict. This was a jury verdict, so it wasn't a settlement. It was a jury verdict. Uh, 9.5 million. And, uh, you know, they agreed with you, Rick. They agreed with you. This wasn't a good job. So this case is HAB v. Thompson. It's from Idaho. 11-year-old felt pain in her hip during swimming. Her family doctor saw her and diagnosed a strain. She was seen again days later and again diagnosed with the strain. And then a month later told her mom something popped in her hip while she was walking upstairs. So she gets brought to an ED, the physician diagnoses a, a skiffy, a slipped capital femoral epiphysis, talks to ortho. The ortho doc recommends follow-up in two days, but unfortunately for the ED doc, they did not document that discussion with the orthopedist. So the patient eventually follows up instead of getting it taken care of right away. She gets avascular necrosis, ends up with a hip replacement at age 11. So a lot of the problem with the case came down to discussion of whether this physician actually talked to the orthopedist um, and what he was advised. The ED records uh, did show calls to a particular orthopedist who denied that he was contacted or that he would have given that uh, advice. So the, there was no uh, jury verdict. They actually settled. Um, the amount was confidential. But I think this case illustrates a couple things. One, you know, skiffy can be difficult to diagnose. And, you know, the, the classic, we think of like a fat white boy. And this was an 11-year-old female. And again, minor uh, type of injury, maybe not the type of thing that would make people think of getting an x-ray. I mean, she had pain during swimming. That doesn't seem like something that would cause a fracture, but I, I think unless you're thinking skiffy, you probably might not do x-rays. And then the other issue is the consultant documentation. I uh, always tell residents, it drives me crazy, they'll document ortho on their chart. And, you know, they don't put a time, they don't put who they talk to, and ortho is not a person. You need a person. And then you don't need to document a paragraph, but I think, you know, the gist of your conversation, because we see emergency physicians getting burned on this, you know, time after time. And what, what makes you think at a major university hospital, because I've been involved in the defense of some major university hospitals, they have a record of who had called that night. So if it said ortho resident called, 
I mean, that that is unacceptable for us to follow up and know what's going on. If you want to actually put somebody's name down there, that helps us. If you don't, then you have to eat it when something goes wrong and we can't locate somebody because everyone's going to say the same thing. If I'd been called on that, this is what I would have told them or this is what I would have done. That's because people lie a lot. Uh, So have a name that we can trace. I'm really glad you brought this case up because there's nothing worse than trying to go through 42 residents at a giant university program to see who might have answered the call. I agree. I like to put down their name and, uh, if I can, a, a short quote that, you know, verifies that I talked to them. And I think it's definitely not good enough to just, you know, rely on on the records from the secretary. But we just see this being a problem over and over. And, um, you know, eventually maybe it'll all be recorded at some point. But I think for now we have to make a little more effort on our charts. Was this a, a ER physician calling a, res- a resident <laughs> or somebody in the hospital or was it a – This was private- an attending to attending. You know that's really surprising that they that the ortho uh, attending would say that he never got the call. I mean that is so strange. Um, when his colleague says you did, I do. I I talk to you, and don't you recall it? Because it's so key in this case. And I'm also surprised that if it was a phone call, that uh, I think that they can ascertain whether phone calls are not answered or answered. And uh, that's very strange that um, they couldn't determine that there was a, a answered phone call by the part of, of the uh, orthopedic uh, consultant. So it's kind of like this is this is. I wonder if this case would have gone differently if the uh, the uh, they believed that the orthopedist was contacted and this is the advice that the orthopedist did give. I mean, why would yeah. the uh, why would the ER doctor make it up? Well, two things. Number one, Rick, you're right. Now we can, particularly if you went through a cell tower, uh, we can get those records. No problem at all. In In the old days, they could not. Now they can. But the second thing is whether it changes the amount of money they awarded, it would certainly change, uh, who, whose money got spent and insurance companies, uh, if it's not the same insurer for the emergency doc and the orthopedic surgeon, they'll go at each other hammer and tong. I mean, uh, lawyers don't care as long as their client's not paying the money. I think uh, another issue. I think another issue in this case was some confusion about who was on call, and so the ED doc uh, wrote down one name of an orthopedist, but in fact had probably talked to a different one. So one, the orthopedist name who ended up on the chart was actually on vacation, and the other one, there was a record that he was called, but then he claimed that he wasn't called and would have given better advice. So when I'm talking to consultants, I actually will often ask, doctor, can you spell your name for me? Mm, so then they good. know, okay, guess what? Your name is being put in the chart. So, uh, you know, realize that you're in this now. And so then even if it's Smith, um, Dr. Smith, is that the usual spelling? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Here, here around the Detroit area, we have names like, uh, you know, Golombiewski. Well, Dr. Golombiewski, is that common spelling? And he'll say, yeah, yeah, common spelling. Greg Moore, you have something to say. 
Uh, what, what, two things. One was, uh, boy, I just came from an army place and it was really, really nice. Uh, not only with medical legal issues, but with uh, interpersonal issues, uh, all of our lines were recorded. And, it w- you know, when some consultant would go off on you and then you'd say, hey, he called me this and he'd go, no. And then you'd play the recording in front of all the administrators. <laughs> and likewise, with documentation of consultant, that that was a luxury that I loved. I also would put another spin on this. This is Dr. Moore's uh, consultant three times name in the room with the patient. You know, you're out there doing all this calling, but the patient doesn't know that. You got to go back to the room and say, I called orthopedics and Dr. Jones said, we should do this. So now I'm going to put you in a brace and I'm going to discharge you because Dr. Jones, the orthopedist said, we should do this. And in three days, I need you to follow up with Dr. Dr. Jones, Jones. <laughs> the orthopedist that I talked to tonight. I say the name three times so the patient knows. Hey, he called Dr. Jones. I don't know what the deal is here. He called him. Right, exactly. That's a good, that's a good tip. Uh, I like that. And uh, have family members in the room, too. So yeah. if one doesn't remember them, the other does. I always yeah. love it when the family says, oh, yeah, I think grandma saw him, too, for her hip or something like that. Now you've cemented it into place. Hey, Greg, yes. it's time for your your wines. You're one behind. So, yes, it's two wine time. It's two wine time. Um, we, are, we are going to taste a very reasonable French wine. Now, I know all the criticism about expensive wine and blah, 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 blah. Anyway. We have a, a Chateau de Moulin Rouge, uh, Metu, uh, Haute Meduc, and this is a 2015 uh, available through most of your wine dealers, an exceptional wine, 2015, and you can get this for about 35 bucks a bottle. But the surprise for the day is one we did a few years ago. I wanted to retest it and see if it is still as good. That is Decoy. And this is Sonoma County, uh, California. If Sonoma County still exists, I don't know. It was burning yesterday. But this is Sonoma County. And what they do uh, under California law, if a wine is not 51%, a particular grape, they cannot call it that wine. So if you buy a Zinfandel, California, at least 51% of the grapes have to be Zinfandel. Well, what Sonoma County does is it takes a lot of their reds, what they've got left over, puts them together, and they call it decoy. That's the trade name. Sonoma uh, wine. Uh, This is a 2015. It is not for purists, but it's excellent red wine. And at the end of those harvests, they're going to have wines left over, put it together. This is seven and a half dollars a bottle. Wow. And uh, you know what? I like it just fine. And if I've had a pre-dinner drink, this stuff's even better. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's fantastic. Is your French wine seven times, five times as good as that wine? No, it's not. And so I'm pointing that out that you can go decoy they carry it, I think, at Costco. They carry it a lot of places. And uh, it's excellent. This is particularly good with uh, pastas. So 
the uh, the wine of the month of the special is at seven and a half bucks a bottle. It's hard to beat decoy. It's great. I, I, I find that, you know, the when I have wines like that, the first bottle, sometimes, I don't know, it may be good, may not be good, but the second bottle always tastes great. Yeah. Always <laughs> yeah. better. Absolutely. And the later, the, as, as you go into the evening, it gets better. In it fact, now, now we're tipping them up to get the last couple of drops out. All right. We're going to wrap this up now here. Uh, All right. I want to thank Greg Moore, Melanie Hennef. Uh Thanks so much uh, for these cases. We, we, uh, we would, we have a hard time finding peds cases, and I think that maybe your your your, your uh, pipeline is much stronger than ours in that regard. And Greg, I want to uh, hope you recover from your tuberculosis that you apparently have, have <laughs> developed yeah. over the last couple of months. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing the best I can, Rick. Yeah. Okay, that's it. We're right. Uh, we're what is and. November issue? Uh, November issue. You've got it. Okay. Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.